Welcome to the Joint Heirs Podcast of San Francisco Bible Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Roger, and I will be looking at episode, uh, I'll be conducting episode three of the Black Lives Matters uh, podcast. Now, despite the originally stated purpose for this podcast by Pastor Ray, uh, more thought and study over what has been happening in our country in recent days has uh, inevitably led to an expansion of our topic, not just to Black Lives Matters, but uh, to some issues of social justice that uh, intertwine with Black Life, Lives Matters. So our goal in this podcast is to, to take some of what we have seen in current events and compare what has happened with uh, what the scriptures say. Now, as Christians, our obligation is not first to society. Okay, our obligation is not first to society. We do have a, an obligation to society, but our obligation first and foremost is to God and to his word because obedience to him is not only right, it's an indication that we truly love him. Now, uh, I just want to make some notes and, and remind you that I'm not approaching this part of the series as an expert on all of these issues, but I come at it as a humble shepherd, a fellow brother in Christ who has as my motivation a desire to be faithful to the Word of God and to love you all according to what the Word of God says. And so uh, this particular episode, we're going to be looking at the Word of God, why it's necessary to help us shape our thoughts and our responses to what we've been seeing in the world, not just with George Floyd, um, but with uh, and not just Black Lives Matters, but everything that we've been seeing. So uh, we're we're going to begin here, and um, and uh, let's let's first start with a word of prayer, as we humbly go before the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for how you have given us the gift of your word, because it is through your word that we understand who you are. And so we pray that even though we might be covering some familiar topics this, uh, this day uh, or in this podcast, we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we strive to understand your word better. So Father, we pray that you would be pleased as we look at your word and as we understand uh, what uh, it says about you and the world that we live in as your sons and we pray. Amen. So we begin here with God's word. We have to start with God's word, even though it might be familiar, because God's word, it alone is authoritative. Because of what God's word says to us about God himself and the world that we live in, this is our basis for truth. This is our standard of truth. Now, some people try to make a false distinction when we talk about the scriptures, claiming that we're worshiping the Bible rather than God. But the question that we have to ask is, how do you worship God outside of what he himself has revealed about himself in his word? Without his word, we don't know who he is. Without his word, we don't know how we are to properly worship him. Any knowledge of God that is found outside of the scriptures are not reliable. It leads to a worship of a God who might look like the God of the Bible, but is not actually the God of the Bible. In other words, what we could get if we're worshiping God, not according to what the scriptures say, is 
idolatry. What we could get is idolatry. And so that's why when it comes to worldview, when it comes to how we think about current events, we want to make sure that we have God in the picture because God is the creator. He is the one who is in charge of all things. And because he himself is the creator, because he is the one who gets to establish truth, the truth that we live by has to be the truth that God himself defines. Genesis 1 reminds us that God is the creator who created the world and all that it contains through the power of his word. So when we talk about God's word, it's not something that is powerless, but it is something that is incredibly powerful. You and I cannot do anything with our words. Um, at least we cannot create things with our words. We cannot form physical substance just by speaking. Now, we do know that our words have power. We do know that our words matter. They have impact. But that shows even more the great power of God's word and the impact of his, uh, his words. Because when we speak, if I said, let there be light, if I don't flip on a switch or press a power button, there is no light. But God, when he said, let there be light, light came forth. It came into being. And so the reason why we want to make sure that we understand and recognize the great power of God's word is because his word actually has power. And so as the creator, God gets to set the rules. God gets to set the rules because he's holy. He's um, Exodus 19.6 and Leviticus 19.2. It is a reminder to all of God's people that we are to be holy, not just because God says so, not just because it's a good idea to be holy, but we are to be holy because God himself is holy. Psalm 119, 160 says this, the sum of God's word is truth. Uh, the sum of God's word is truth. That means that uh, even... Uh, that if we were to sum up every single word that is found in, in the scriptures, we would find out that all of those words are truth. It's the truth of God. And because of that, we want to know what does God's word have to say when it comes to truth. If we want to answer snarky Pilate's question of what is truth, John 17, 17, in the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays for us, Jesus says that, that God's word is truth. He, um, let's turn there real quick. John 17, 17 says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So when we're talking about God's word, we're not just talking about something that is um, potentially useful or that is only true for a certain population. This is the objective truth of God. This is the objective truth of God. Okay, This is not just God's truth and that we get to operate on our own truth. We operate on the objective word of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16-17. to 17, um, If we turn there really quick, it reminds us of why we want to pay attention to God's word. It says, 
uh, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good word. That word inspired, it reminds us, or it teaches us that it comes from God. It is literally God-breathed. The words that come out from God, the scriptures, are God-breathed. Right? So they find their source in God. And so if we believe that God is holy, if we believe that God is truth, then that means his word is also truth. Everything that he says, it is true. And it's not just true for truth's sake, but it has a purpose. Paul tells us that because, uh, that because God's word is inspired by God, because the scriptures are from God, it is profitable for teaching. Right? It's profitable. It's not like it has no profit at all. It's not like it's useless. It is extremely profitable. It does something and it's good for teaching. What does it teach us? It teaches us about righteousness. It teaches us about sin. It teaches us about how we need salvation and how God himself accomplished that salvation. It's also profitable for reproof. You and I desperately need the word of God because our wicked and deceitful hearts tell us that we either are not sinful or are not responsible for our sin. We always need to be reminded of the fact that we are sinners. Even if we've placed our faith in God, even if we are doing our best to live righteously before him, we still need that reproof. We still need that reproof. We also need correction. We need correction because you and I can be, uh, you can, you and I can be easily influenced, easily thrown out of whack, easily deceived. We need correction because our sinful hearts often let us get away with sin, justifying uh, ourselves before in our own eyes. Right? And and we also need training in righteousness. As, as Christians, just because we get saved doesn't mean that we are perfectly righteous automatically. Yes, in terms of legal position, we are declared righteous because of Christ's work, but you and I need to be trained in righteousness. We need practice. We need instruction so that we can actually live what God defines as righteous lives, not what we think is a righteous life. And the reason why we need the word of God for these things is because God has designed these things to train us, to teach us so that we can be adequate, so that we can have sufficiency in our work. We can, um, we can meet the standard required of Christians and so that we can be equipped for every good work. That, lets, that, that brings us to the question, what is every good work? Every good work is righteousness. Every good work is following after Christ. Every good work is not what society says is good work, but is what God says is good work. It's how we as Christians interact with one another within the body. 
It is how we as Christians, because of our love for one another, begin to interact with people in the community and minister to them and proclaim to them the gospel because that's what they need. Okay, so this is the word of God. This is what people, uh, what, what people need. This is how God has designed for people to know him. Hebrews 1 to 2 tells us that uh, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. The author notes that the one behind the prophets, the one who, uh, who inspired the holy prophets in the Old Testament, was God himself. God was speaking to his people through the prophets. And now God is speaking through Christ and, and also through the apostles. And so when we look at the word of God, we, we recognize and we remember that these words that God gives us are not empty words. These words that God gives us are not meant for us to interpret however we want, but we have to understand what God's intent was. We have to understand the intent that the author who was communicating to us God's word has in helping us understand the meaning of, uh, of his word. Um, let's turn to Second Peter. Okay, Second Peter 1 verse 3 says this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now skip down with me to verses uh, 19 to 21 of first P uh, Second Peter. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When we look at the scriptures, when we understand the, the role of the word of God, we understand that God has intended it for us so that we can be the people that he wants us to be. He didn't just save us and left us to our own devices so that we could eventually find our way to being like Christ. He saved us in this, particular, uh, in this particular manner and gave us his word so that so that we could take the principles found in his word, take this truth found in his word, and grow. God does not demand us to be righteous and to figure it out on our own, but he has given us everything pertaining to life everything pertaining to godliness, right? everything that we need to know for life, everything that we need to know to be godly, he has given to us. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He's given us a true knowledge of him. 
what we have in the scriptures is everything that we need to know about God. Right? The, the words that the prophets had spoke after they were moved by the Holy Spirit, they were sure words, but there was still a level of anticipation. There was still a level of the unknown. But what we see here in 1 Peter is that the prophetic word, it's become more sure because of Christ. Because as we've seen God be faithful to fulfilling prophecy, the prophecies that he has allowed for his holy prophets in the past to, to speak out, we can see that the words that they spoke were true. And because those words are true, the words that we see written in the scriptures are made more sure. We can put more hope into it because we know that God actually means what he says and that he does what he says. And he operates based off of what he says in his word. This is not the uh, imagination of men who decided to try and create their own religion. But these men, they wrote only what the Holy Spirit has revealed to them. Now, you might be wondering, why is an understanding of the Word of God so important for our discussion for the things that we see today? Well, if the Word of God reflects who, God's, uh, who God is, and if it speaks into this world, then the reason why we have to start here with the Word of God is because we recognize that God's Word has authority to speak into our lives. It was relevant to Christians who were under heavy persecution at the hands of Nero. It was relevant to the Christians who had to learn to fight against the injustice and wickedness from Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Mussolini. It is relevant to those who were determined to end the global slave trade and to abolish slavery. It is relevant even today. And not just because we say so, but because Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can, it can also uh, divide. Uh, it can divide. Uh, it pierces as far as the, the divide between soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scriptures are not just a book for back then. The scriptures are the book for now, for right now. It is living and active. The solution to today's issues cannot be addressed outside of the scriptures. You can put it in all, uh, you, you can put in all the reform that you want in this world. But if you don't understand what God's word has to say about the world, about man, about the heart of man, sin, salvation, Christian living, and the end goal of Christian living, then you're going to ignore what the Bible actually says, and you're just going to pursue man's own way of bringing about change. We've seen that in recent days, have we not? What has been the proposed solution for what we see in the world? educate yourself. Right? We've been told, you need to educate yourself. There are videos that you need to see. There are books that you need to read. Now, on its face, it's not bad to read more books. It's not necessarily bad to watch videos. But the question is, how are you going to process these things with 
discernment. In this politicized world we live in, what determines what you get up for in a fight? What will you fight for? What determines what you're going to be emotional about? How are you going to sort through bias? There's conservative bias. There's liberal bias. How are we going to figure out what is truth? You know, a popular phrase that has been going around, and if you've used this, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm not trying to attack you. But a popular phrase that has been going around is, I'm listening and I'm learning. That's good. On its face, it's good. It's good to be listening. It's good to hear other people's stories so we don't live in a pretend world. It's good for us to learn about what is going on in the world around us and and what some of the previous injustices that were here in the world uh, were. It's good for us to know that. And to see how maybe even some of it applies to today. However, however, the question again goes back to how are you going to process this with discernment? You can listen and you can learn and that is a good thing. But it's just like my old band teacher said. Practice does not make perfect. Because you can practice a lot. But if you practice wrong, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to be wrong. You're going to be perfectly wrong. And so in the same way, in the same way, you can be listening and you can be learning. But if you are listening to the wrong things, you will be learning wrong things. So we have to be careful. We have to be so careful about what we're listening to and, and how we determine what is true. Because make no mistake, the media is not out there to objectively give you truth. It doesn't matter whether you're a CNN person or MSNBC person or a Fox News person. The media is not out to give you the truth, and you have to remember that. They're they're ratings-driven. This is show. This is a show. This is entertainment to to a certain extent. We don't hear about certain things in the news because it doesn't matter to some things don't matter to us. So you have to remember that they are trying to feed you a narrative. We have to be so careful about what we listen to. Be wary of what Pastor Vody Balcom has called uh, uh, the new canon. It's not enough for us to know what the scriptures say. Some people will say, oh, good, you've heard the scriptures and you've read the scriptures about this, but have you read this? Have you read that? There are, there are many works out there that are being uh, recommended and, and, uh, and promoted, books about anti-racism, books about, uh, about whiteness and about wokeness and, and all these kind of things. And do we, really, do we really need to bring those alongside what the Word of God has to say in order to operate well in the society? Do we, do we need to do that? No, we don't, and we'll see why. But we have to be so careful because some of these people, even if they call themselves Christians, if they've bought into worldly philosophy and they've elevated that to the level of Scripture, we are in danger of falling after a false god, a false idol. 
And we have to be especially careful of reading some of these works that are written by non-Christians because they're not trying to teach you from a biblical perspective. They're trying to teach you from their worldview, a worldly worldview. The one that promotes everything that God's word calls and labels sin. You have to remember what Romans 8, 7 says, uh, or 8, 6 to 7 says. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Brothers and sisters, be so, so careful about this new canon. This new canon that's trying to tell you the way things are from a worldly, historical perspective. Some of these things are true. We cannot deny history. We cannot deny history. However, even though we cannot deny history, we can make sure that we understand man according to God's word. And we can move forward. We can try and and have real change here in this life through God's means. Through God's means. But if we do so through man's means, you're only going to treat the symptom and not the disease. That's why we need the Word of God and only the Word of God. People call Christians people of the book. We are people of the book. Because knowing the Bible and rightly interpreting the Word of God is something that is absolutely crucial for all Christians. It's absolutely crucial for all Christians because it is an issue of ultimate morality. It is an issue of ultimate morality. What we say the Word of God says and and how we live according to what the Word of God says is an issue of ultimate morality morality. We need to know what God's Word says in its historical grammatical context. In its historical, its literal historical grammatical context. We may claim to be biblical by throwing out a bunch of verses to support our views, but if you don't look uh, look up the verses in their context and apply it properly, we are guilty of misinterpreting Scripture. We have to get this right from God's perspective. John 14, 15 and 1 John 5, 2 to 3 tells us that if you love God, you will seek to know what God's Word says and to obey His commandments. We have to know what God's Word says, and we have to obey His commandments. We don't get to pick and choose. You you don't just obey the commandments that are easy and are convenient, but we are to persistently strive to obey all of God's commandments together. And we start here because we understand that if God sets the definitions then any conversation that we have as His people to understand this world must abide by his definitions. One of my seminary professors used to say this, he who controls the definitions controls the war or controls the argument, the discussion. Because based off of our definitions, we are able to argue our points. Okay, so if God sets the definitions 
If God sets the definitions, we abide by those definitions. And so what is truth is not what the latest social theories and experts say. It's not what the uh, the social theories are and, and what the experts who advance them say. It is the word of God itself. Okay, so the authority of the Bible, it is so key to our discussion because without the scriptures, we have shaky ground for any positions that we take. Now, um, how do we know that's true? Well, it's because God's word itself reminds us that we need his word. If we were to put all of the books of the Bible in chronological order, the majority of scholars would agree that Job, the book of Job, is chronologically the first book. It's the earliest book. And a lot of this is due to the fact that when you look at the Hebrew of Job, the language is very early Hebrew. And in addition, when you look at how, how wealth is, is described, it's measured solely in terms of quantity of animals. And this is something that was true of Abraham. And so a lot of scholars place the dating of the book of Job to the age of the patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac around that time. Um, if you want to think about it this way, the book of Job is to Genesis as the Hobbit is to the Lord of the Rings. It provides us context for the rest of, uh, of the series. Now, Typically, if someone were to ask you what the book of Job is about, you would say, and rightly so, that it's about suffering. It's about suffering. It's uh, about, uh, to use fancy words, it's about the problem of theodicy, or why does God allow for suffering and evil to be in the world? And it's something that we will touch a little bit more on in a future podcast. But uh, while the book of Job really is about, or while the book of Job is about suffering, it also is equally about the need for divine revelation, the need for divine wisdom. So we know from a reader's perspective that God is in absolute control of everything that is happening to Job. Uh, you'll, note, you'll notice this in the beginning of the book as we see, um, you know, we see the description of Job and then Satan uh, presents himself before the Lord with, all the, with uh, all the rest of the sons of God. And then in verse 6 of Job 1, or sorry, verse 7 of Job 1, guess who instigates this whole, uh, this whole thing? It's not Satan. It's God. God is the one who is in absolute control. He sets the boundaries. He tells, he, he puts the challenge to Satan and he even limits in, uh, Satan in terms of what he uh, is able to do to Job. So God is in sovereign control and he's trying to prove a point, not just about Job, but also he's proving a point to the rest of us who are reading the book of Job. That we need, not only, not only do we need to recognize his sovereignty, but that we need him. We need him to help us understand what's going on. You'll, uh, if, if you think about what you know about the book of Job, you'll know that at the end of the book of Job, God does not give Job an answer as to why he allowed some of these things to happen. Right? He, he, uh, he confronts Job. He confronts Job's friends. He establishes what's true. And then things are, in a sense, back to normal. So what God is trying to show us is not only that um, 
not only that he is sovereign, but that we need his wisdom. You look at the opening, the opening speeches between Job and his friends. Job and his friends, they're wondering about why Job has suffered and suffered so greatly. And his unhelpful friends, they speak to him or, or at him from human perspectives. Eliphaz, he speaks from a historical perspective. Every time you look at his speeches, he is drawing his theology from what has happened in history. Bildad, or Bildad the science guy, he derives his theology from what man knows about God from an observational science perspective. And so far, his theology is one that is driven by philosophy. And what we see in these multiple round of speeches between Job and his friends is that each time Job's friends are trying to convince him of his sin. They're trying to convince him of how the world works based off of their understanding. So Eliphaz will tell him from a historical perspective why Job must be suffering. Bildad tells him from what he's observed in science why Job must be suffering. And Zophar uh, tells him from, from a philosophical foundation why he believes that Job must be suffering. And each time they come at him and try and explain to him why he is in sin and why he must repent, Job answers with words that are mostly true about God, and he demonstrates successfully that his friends speak from ignorance. You'll notice that in the beginning of all these speeches, and you'll have to read the book of Job for this, right? but you'll notice that as you read these speeches, the speeches begin very long. Eliphaz is a, has a very long speech. Bildad has a long speech. Uh, Zophar has a relatively long speech. And each time, um, despite their long speeches, Job comes back with a longer speech and he disproves a good amount of what they say. Now, for all four of these men, for Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they do at times speak true things about God. However, they also speak a great deal of untruth about God too, demonstrating that while man has the intellectual ability to observe and say accurate things about God at times from what is evident in the world, that knowledge is not good enough. What, what we have from a human perspective is lacking. We need more. We need an accurate understanding of who God is, and that comes from God himself. And uh, we also see this backed up by the entrance of a, a fourth friend who was not mentioned in the beginning, and that's Elihu. And he's, uh, he's, he enters in in Job 32. And he's the young guy. He's just listening to, to these older friends talk. And um, by the time Job 32 uh, comes around, he cannot hold his tongue. He cannot hold his tongue. He says in verse 11 of um, uh, of Job 32, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. Do not say, We have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man, for he has not arranged his words against me, now, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Shall I wait? Because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I, too, will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me, 
behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would take me away. And then he says in... uh, in Job 33, however now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold, now I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. And he continues to speak. But basically what Elihu is saying here in Job 33 is he's got a lot of words to say to refute all these wrong things that Job's friends and even Job at times has said about who God is. He's ready to burst and he's just spilling out all that God uh, has revealed to him. Okay, he's, he's spilling out all that God has revealed to him. And he goes on for quite some time. And right after Elihu finishes speaking to Job in, uh, in Job 37, who speaks up but God himself? Who speaks up but God himself? Job cannot, like Elihu says, refute him. Job cannot fight back. And God actually comes in and, sa- and affirms everything that Elihu has said. And what we and we know that God also affirms everything that Elihu says, not just from the content of what he says to Job in his rebuke of Job, but what we see in Job 42 verses 7 to 9 is that God is displeased with Job's friends. But the only ones mentioned are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He's displeased with everyone except Elihu. Elihu spoke rightly because he spoke about God accurately. And so, all that to say, that life, that brief summary of Job, all that is to help us understand that if we want to understand what's going on in this world, if we want to understand suffering, the, the problem of evil, then what we need is divine revelation. We need divine revelation because divine revelation alone answers the hard questions in life because God is the source of life. His sovereignty reigns over all. There's so much more to say. There's so much more to say, but um, we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about the sufficiency of God's word. We'll talk about the sufficiency of God's word. We we recognize not just the truth of it and how we need it, but we recognize what we need to recognize is that the word of God actually does something in our lives. In Psalm 19, verse um, verses one to six, these these opening verses tell us about how great the general revelation is, how great creation is, as at telling us uh, a little bit about who God is. But in verse seven. What David wants us to recognize is even though the world and creation can show us some of the cool stuff that God has done and some of the greatness of God, the law of God is better. He uses six synonyms to describe the word of God and he shows us 
its excellency. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The law of the, sh- uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. It, they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we look at Psalm 19, what David wants us to recognize is how much we need the word of God. How do we allow for the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts to be acceptable before God? Only when we are living by the word of God, when we're being transformed by the word of God. Uh, Colossians 3 1 to 17, it tells us about how the Word of God changes lives. It changes our lives. Um, It says, uh, because of salvation. It says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. for For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We know of this glorious truth because of what the Word of God teaches us. And so, because of what God teaches us, because we are one with Christ and we've been raised up with Christ, we're trying to seek the things above, the Word of God therefore tells us that we are to consider the members, this is verse 5 of Colossians 3, the members of our earthly bodies as dead to immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. We are supposed to be dead to idolatry, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them we once walked, past tense, when we were living in the sins. But now, you also, putting them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. Notice this emphasis on knowledge. True knowledge according to what? The image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving or with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I read to you the entirety of Colossians 3, 1 to 17, with some interpretation mixed in, so that we can see how the word of God changes lives. It's not just theoretical, it's real. It impacts everything. The word of God is the thing that informs us of what truth is. It informs us of what righteousness is. We have a responsibility to allow our lives to be transformed by the word of God. Romans 12 reminds us that we are to be transformed in the renewal of our minds. We need truth. We need truth desperately. Ephesians 4, 11 to 24 reminds us of that. We are supposed to, to speak the truth in love. Right? We're supposed to speak the truth in love. That's what Ephesians uh, 4, um, that's what Ephesians 4 tells us. We're to speak the truth in love. But what is this truth that we are to speak? Um, verse, uh, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What is this truth? It's not just any kind of truth. It's not my truth. It's not your truth. It's not uh, the fact that someone is uh, sinful. The truth that we speak to them is the truth of the gospel, if you look at it in context. Right? It's the mature knowledge of the Son of God. Um, and it's, a, it's the thing that transforms us so that we're not uh, carried about by every wind and wave of doctrine. Right? So the truth that we speak in love is the gospel. And the gospel truth that comes into our lives, that is spoken in love. And sometimes that does mean uh, that we have to be blunt with people. Sometimes it means that. Sometimes we have to just lay it out there and say, hey, did you know that if you do not believe, the way of a transgressor is hard? Do you know that if you do not believe, that if you do not repent, that you will spend an eternity in hell? Sometimes that's what speaking the truth in love means. It doesn't mean that you have to be obnoxious. It doesn't mean that you have to be mean. But it does mean that we have to be, uh, that we have to be faithful in, in proclaiming the gospel because we love people. And we don't want them to go to hell. And the reason why we know that we're not to be contentious and cantankerous people is because Ephesians 5 tells us that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. And we are to, what does verse 2 say? Walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We are to call, we are to imitate God in everything. There's, we are to call people to be like God. We are not to be sinful, but we are to strive to allow for the truths of the word of God to come in, transform our minds so that in uh, our hearts so that we can live righteously before the world and we can point them back to the God who saves. We can point them back to the God who can truly make a difference. This imitation of God is 
is so necessary. It influences every part of, of this life that we live in. We, we like to talk about how we are in spiritual warfare. And one of the, one of the classic VBS lessons that we teach kids is about the full armor of God. And the reason why we tell, teach them about the full armor of God is because we want to tell them that we're in spiritual warfare and we need God. We need His help. But where does this idea of the armor of God come from? Is this just some metaphor that, uh, that uh, Paul pulls out of, out of thin air? No, it's not. He is actually referring to Isaiah 59, 14 to 20. And the armor that God puts on is armor that he puts on to go to war. Because verse 15 of Isaiah 59 says that there was no justice. God saw that there was no justice in man. That we were sinful and and we were uh, we were lost in our sins. And since there was no man to intercede, since there was no man to make things right, God Himself straps on the armor. He goes to war to deliver us. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians six when he tells us to put on the armor of God is he's trying to to show us that as we are imitators of God. Uh, or as we're entering into to spiritual warfare, we are to be imitators of God himself. Right? The same armor that God puts on, we put on as we go about life, as we go fight these spiritual battles. Now, again, let's, let's uh, move out of the theology and let's go back into the, into the world, okay? And how this applies to the world. How does all this talk, how does all this talk about the Bible, its truth, its sufficiency, um, our need for it, how does it relate to current events and the philosophical and revolutionary movement that we're seeing trying to get off the ground here in America? Well, essentially what we are seeing right now in America is the question of Job. Why is there suffering? Why is there economic disparity? And these aren't bad questions to ask. These aren't necessary questions to ask at times. But we forget that the question underlying all of these questions is, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in this world? We understand it's because of sin. Evil is in this world because of sin. The world we live in does not like to look at things in terms of good and evil. You have to remember that. They don't want to tell you that people are evil. They don't want to acknowledge evil. That would actually go against what they want you to believe about man. They want you to believe, right? The world wants you to believe that there are no such things as bad people. There are no such things as evil people. People are inherently good and they do bad things. Or perhaps they're a product of their environment. Or perhaps uh, there's just something wrong with them biologically. They're missing some, uh, some hormones or some genes. And that's the reason why they, they are the way that they are. But that is such a hopeless statement. That's a, such a hopeless perspective of who man is. It basically says that if you come up in a bad environment, if you're a, res- if you're a product uh, of a sinful environment, you're doomed to stay in there. But there's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as evil. But that's not what the scriptures say, is it? We know from the scriptures that there is such thing as evil. 
that in all honesty, there is no such thing as a truly innocent person outside of Christ. Because Romans 3.23 tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of these sins, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We all deserve eternal death and separation from God because our sins earned us eternal death and separation from God. But God, Romans 5.8, demonstrates or demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, we may be influenced by our environments, but influence is not determinative. Influence is not determinative. To say it another way, the circumstances of life may have a profound impact and influence in the person you become, but the circumstances in your life do not determine who you have to be. Look at the example of Joseph. He was the favorite son, but he fell out of favor because of the visions that he received of getting more honor than his older brothers. And so he was sold. He was presumed dead, sold into slavery. He was presumed dead. And even when he was uh, a slave, he was wrongly accused of sexual assault on Potiphar's wife. He was thrown into prison unjustly, and he stayed there for years. Even though when he helped someone, and they promised they would help him in return, um, even though that promise was made, he remained in prison. And it wasn't until this person eventually remembered Joseph that he uh, was let out of prison. And because God was with him, because God was with him, because God sustained him and encouraged him through these times, Joseph was able to get raised up to the second in command of all of Egypt. And then he was able to basically save the whole world with his wisdom. And remember what his brothers said? In Genesis 50, his brothers, they were fearful that Joseph would retaliate against them once, once Jacob died because of how they sold him off into slavery and left him for dead. And so they tried to make up this story that Jacob wanted them to remind him to be kind to them. And Joseph reminds them that what his brothers had intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph had a hard life. His circumstances could have made him very bitter. It could have made him hateful, resentful. Uh, it could have led to him abandoning God. It has an influence into the person that he became. It, it has influence. It has the potential to influence, but it did not determine who he was. Rather, his faith in God was the thing that changed him. His faith in God was the thing that held him fast, despite the bad circumstances. God can and will change our lives as a result of our belief in Him. And so when we emphasize the need for the Bible to be our framework through which we understand life, and when we say that the gospel is the answer to these problems, we're not being unhelpful. There are people out there who are saying, if you're not, if you're just saying preach the gospel, but you don't provide any uh, substantive co conversation about how, uh, uh, about what else we might do, that uh, we're just being unhelpful. And perhaps that is true to a point. Perhaps that's true to a point. 
However, what we have to recognize is that the gospel truly is enough to answer the evils that we see. Because the gospel deals with the sin that resides deep in our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us that, the, that our hearts, they're the wellspring of life. Therefore, we must guard our hearts. Matthew 15, 17-20, Jesus is reminding his disciples that sin doesn't come from the outside of a person, but it resides in the heart. The solution to the sin problem that we see in society is the gospel, because the gospel deals with our sinful hearts. Pastor Ray had mentioned in his initial response to the incidences that followed the death of George Floyd that we have to remember that we cannot legislate morality. Right? We can make all sorts of laws and policies to prevent racism, but you will never truly solve the problem because sin resides in the heart of man. There was an incident recently uh, here in California where a San Francisco tech CEO was kicked out of a restaurant for a racist tirade that he had unleashed on a Chinese family. And in his apology, he said, my behavior in the video is appalling. There was clearly a, this was clearly a moment where I lost control and made incredibly hurtful and divisive comments. And then um, he later goes on to say, I was taught to respect people of all races and I will take the time to reflect on my actions and work to better understand the inequality that so many of those around me face every day. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack there, but we're just going to look at this, okay? Even if what he said is true, that he was taught to respect all people uh, or people of all races, he clearly does not. And this incident reminds us that sin does not care what you were taught. Sin lives on in the heart of man. And when the nice coat of paint that we apply to protect the world from our sinful hearts crack and break, our sins are exposed to the world. It doesn't matter how much anti-racism uh, training you receive. It doesn't matter what books that you read to help you become less of a racist. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. And the gospel addresses the sin in our hearts so that when we believe in Christ and repent of our sins, we are made new creations. And this is why it is so important that we remember that salvation is not just about us receiving salvation and moving on in life as if nothing has changed. James 2, 14 to 26 reads this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? 
You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, And Abraham had believed, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, then a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, some people out there have said that James is antithetical to Paul, that James actually teaches something different than Paul, that, that it's not salvation by grace alone, but it's works. That is not at all what James is saying. What James is saying is that true faith is evidenced by work. It's evidenced by action, right? When we, when we ask whether someone is truly repentant for their sins, it is proved by the fruits of repentance. If, if, if someone said that they were sorry for stepping on our toes, but they continue to step on our toes while they're saying sorry to us, are they really repentant? No. We want to see some fruits. We want to see that they don't step on our toes. And so when we talk about Christians having to live a changed life, having to work out their salvation, this is not a works-based righteousness, but it is evidence that what we say we believe is influencing our practice. That's why we talk about, uh, about demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Profession of faith is nothing if it is not backed up by righteous conduct. When we talk about how Christians ought to respond to some of these things, and we'll talk more about it in, in, in later podcasts. But when we talk about the Christian response to some of the injustices that we see, we have to recognize that the Christian response to injustice is driven by faith. It is driven by what the Word of God teaches. If your response is driven by what society says, then it is not driven by faith. It's not driven by faith. It's driven by other truth. We have to allow for the Word of God to be the thing that colors the lens of what we see. It's the framework with which we understand the problems in our world. Yes, there are instances where we can uh, do practical actions to help. There are instances where we can do that. But what we have to make sure is that the principles and the truths that are objectively found in Scripture are motivating and pushing all of our actions, all of our responses. And if it's not found in the scriptures, in its context, then we have to push pause. We have to study more of what the Word of God says to make sure that we are actually responding to what we see in righteousness. For instance, for instance, a lot of people right now are using Micah 6, 8 to justify why we must fight for justice. Micah 6, 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That sounds really good, doesn't it? But this is a question. This is not a command. And what's, what's the context of this verse? 
Well, the leaders in Micah's time were sinful leaders. The king in Micah's time was a sinful leader. He was a Davidic king. And if you know what the Davidic king was supposed to do, he, he was supposed to lead his people in worship. He was supposed to lead his people to the way of salvation. He supposed to point them to God. But he and the religious elites and all the elites in society were guilty of oppressing the people. They were leading the people astray, accumulating more wealth and power for themselves instead of leading the people towards God. And because the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, who were supposed to love the people and point them to God, help them worship God, because they were bad shepherds, what we see in Micah 2, 12 to 13, is that God himself is going to be the one who intercedes and leads. He himself is going to be the good shepherd. Where do we get that? Where, do we, where have we heard that from? He's going to be the good shepherd instead of being a shepherd who devours the flock. And so what we see here in Micah 6, 8 is a question that sets up the rebuke to Israel's leaders. It is the question that tells Israel, you failed. What God's word told you to do, you did not do. You did not care for the people. You did not act righteously. You are guilty of sin against God and you will be punished. That's what Micah 6, 8 says. Micah 6, 8 may function as a warning to us to not be like Israel's leaders, but it really isn't a verse that ought to dictate how Christians live our lives. This is not supposed to be your life verse. It's a question mark, right? If you look at Micah 6, 8, this is a question that sets up the rebuke. More important than Micah 6, 8 in terms of how we ought to live our lives is the greatest commandment. Matthew 22, right? What is the greatest commandment? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbors like ourselves. And Jesus says in Matthew 22 that these, that in these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that in these two commandments, all of the law and all of the writings of the prophets depend. The word of God is the foundation for a righteous society because it informs us of the most important commands we ought to live by. If Christians want to respond rightly and well to some of the things that we've seen around us, we have to make sure that first of all, that we love the Lord our God with everything we've got and that we love people. And when we do that, when we do that, when our love for God influences our love for people. And that is the reason why we act. And that is the reason why we hold the positions that we hold to. Then, then we will be able to please God in all that we do, in all of our interactions. Like I said before, having a biblical worldview is not just about who can quote the most scripture to back up views. It's about who understands the scriptures rightly in its context. And so, you know, uh, we will think more about how the gospel and the scriptures apply to what we are to do and how we are to practically respond to these current events in a, in a future podcast. Okay, this is not it. There is more. Okay, so I, I know that the majority of you will probably agree with a lot of what I'm saying, but there is, there is going to be more. 
on how we are to practically think about, uh, practically um, answer and, and respond to what we've seen in the world. But what I wanted to remind you of as we close is why we begin our reflections on the um, on what we're seeing with thoughts about the Word of God, reminders of our need for the Word of God and our need to understand it rightly. We need to have an accurate understanding of who God is because without an accurate understanding of who God is, as revealed in Scripture, how He works, what His grand plan is, we're going to be like Job's friends. We're going to be like Job's friends speaking without knowledge about God and why the world is the way that it is. We don't want to be like Job's friends. We don't want to speak in ignorance. And so we ought to strive to understand what God is doing in the grand scheme of things. We have to be careful of thinking that it's our job to establish the kingdom of God now. We are tools of God to establish the kingdom of God. But it is not our sole responsibility to bring in the kingdom. It's not as if God has no power. He does. And so that's why we want to make sure we understand who God is, what He has done in His Word. Because that will be the thing that influences how we respond and how we think about what we see in our current events. With that, let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for just reminders from your word of how good you are. Reminders from your word of how holy you are and how your word is truth. And we pray, Lord, that you truly would sanctify us in truth, transform us, make us more like Jesus, make us more like you. Transform our minds, help us to see more of who you are and what you are doing so that we can be a part of it. We can join alongside you. We can do what's right. Not just so that we can do what's right for doing what's right's sake, but so that we may please you because that's all that we want to do. We want to please you and we want to glorify you because we love you. And it's because we love you that we want you to be glorified. Because we love you, we want to see you exalted. We want to see you acknowledged by every tribe, tongue, and nation as God, as King of kings, as Lord of lords. So we pray, Lord, that you would transform us so that we would not live in our sins, so that we would not live for ourselves, but that we would live for you to do what you want us to do in this life. Help us, Father, to be the people that you want us to be in the way that you want us to be so that you alone can receive all the glory and that we would be grateful for that. It's in your sense that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for episode three of our Black Lives Matter series podcast. Uh, there will be uh, a fourth episode uh, in which we will talk about God's salvation plan and how that impacts our understanding of what God is doing in this world. And uh, that will be coming out soon. Have a blessed day.